At the end of the first century, uh, one of Jesus' disciples named John, around 95 AD, was given a message from Jesus himself that he wanted to specifically communicate to seven churches in the area. And, and that's the series we're in right now, the seven churches of Revelation. And uh, as we are in our third city, third week, uh, let me start off with this. Every January, uh, our few student ministry, we take a trip, we go on a winter retreat to Kalahari, which I'm sure all of us are familiar with, one of the largest indoor water parks in the country, in the world. And uh, one of my favorite things to do in the water park, and it's probably because there's usually no wait for it, is the Lazy River. You guys know what a Lazy River is? Right? You, you walk up, and it's not like you can just swim anywhere you want. The water, all of it goes in one, I think, clockwise direction around the park. And so you grab your raft, you jump in, and the current of the water takes you left, takes you one way. And it's, it doesn't take much effort to do that, right? I mean, if you just kick your feet up and just relax, sit on your raft, it's no work. It's gonna, whether you want to or not, it's going to take you in that direction to go with everyone else, to do what everyone else is doing, to go where everybody else is going. And that is unless you make a deliberate choice to hold on to something steady and so you can kind of stand firm and go against the current. And obviously, it's going to take effort to essentially counter uh, that, uh, the way that everyone else is going. And when that happens, you'll probably be a nuisance to everyone else in the lazy river as you're clogging up their lane and they want to get past you. But you will immediately stand out and you will appear different because you're not doing what everyone else is doing. This morning, Jesus is going to challenge us with the truth that as a Christian, we should also stand out and we should also be different. That just as it's easy to go with the current of a lazy river, it's easier to go with the current of culture, to do what everyone else is doing, to be just like everyone else around us. But he wants to remind us this morning that we are to make an intentional effort to hold on and stand firm in our faith to be unlike the world with our actions, with our speech, with our purity. Because we believe in something different, we should live lives that are different from everyone else around us. And no one needed to be reminded of that truth more than the church in the city of Pergamum. And uh, if you've been with us, we have a map uh, of this is Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And we started with Ephesus. And it's going in this clockwise fashion that Jesus is communicating to all these churches. So we had Ephesus, Smyrna. And this week is the the northernmost city, Pergamum. And Pergamum uh, was at one point the capital of the Roman province of that part of Asia. And it is the most famous city out of all of them. And the city today is not Pergamum, but it survives as Bergama in Turkey. And so we're going to jump right into it. To, the, to the, the letter to the church of Pergamum, chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 12. Are we ready? There we go. Verse 12. Jesus says right to the angel or the messenger, the leader of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So every letter, Jesus 
kind of introduces himself in a slightly different way. And here he says that he's the one holding the sharp double-edged sword. This isn't a picture of a gentle Jesus that we often think of, right? I mean, he has a sword. And whenever the Bible refers to this double-edged sword, it's talking about the Bible, Scripture, God's Word. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Bible is able to judge our motives and goes deeper than anything else, that no matter what it touches, it's effective. And Jesus presents himself as the judge and as the authority using his word. And here's why it's important. Uh, when we understand a little bit of context, for Pergamum and for the cities, the area around it, the Roman governor of that area would have been given what was called the right of the sword. The right of the sword. And that was basically, they had the authority to uh, bring about capital punishment among any offender. So they had power to do that. And they also carried with them, not only as a symbol of their power, but also to use it if they needed to, they would literally carry around with them a probably medium-sized, double-edged sword to bring about justice as they saw fit. And Jesus is writing, and he has a double-edged sword. And his point is that, wait a minute, you thought they had the final say? Jesus says, no, that, that remains with me. That you thought the Roman government or the governor or the emperor or C they have the ultimate authority? Jesus says, no, that still remains with me. And he judges not with a literal sword, but with scripture, with the word um, of God. And we'll come back to this a little later. But then we have Jesus commending this church for what they're doing well in verse 13. It says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name. And notice that, that language. You are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas. So Jesus is saying, hey, Pergamum Church, I know where you're at and you are in Satan's throne. You know how every city uh, has like their own slogan, right? I looked it up this morning. Tiffin's is the education community. Is that right? Okay, some of you know. Some of you are like, I have no idea. Um, uh, Fremont's is where people come first. You know, something inviting, something cheerful. Imagine driving up to Pergamum and just Satan's throne welcomes you. You know, it's like not, not where you'd want to spend a lot of time, right? But this is where Jesus is saying, hey, I know where you're at. Satan dwells here. Satan uh, has his throne. Probably Jesus is saying this because of just the sheer number of evil things that were going on that took place in this city. And, uh, and so we'll give you a little more background on Pergamum. If you were to go there today, what you see is this. It is just uh, a city that most of it is built on this 1,000-foot hill. And it just looks impressive, doesn't it? I mean, it's like bold, it's authoritative. Even the city itself almost sits as a throne overlooking the surrounding areas and the other part of the city. And uh, not only is it impressive, but it's a very distinguished city. That they were proud of all the worship that took place in that city. That you couldn't walk 10 feet without running into a temple or an altar, something to sacrifice to. It just happened to be all the wrong things. That the Roman Empire didn't necessarily discourage you worshiping a god. 
You can do whatever you want. Just don't say that your God is the only way. And uh, that's where the tension came with believers. And we even have another photo here of uh, just a, an, another view of kind of on the hill. And there's Bergama down um, below and their amphitheater, which we'll talk about in a second. But just an awesome looking city. And this is where Jesus says, hey, Satan lives here. And there may be some reasons as to why that is. It's because there's so many just different false, fake idols and false religions going on at this time. The city had a little bit for everyone. It was a religion buffet, if you will. Like you could pick and choose who you wanted to worship. And we have a, a, another photo of just a kind of a rendering of what it could have looked like. And it seems to be pretty accurate that 2,000 years ago, something along these lines is what they would experience at Pergamum. And so let's talk about some of the worship that took place. We'll start with the first one, that this is the temple of Athena. Uh, the, the first temple built in Pergamum was to Athena, and she was the goddess of wisdom, that not just like book smart, but her wisdom led to life. And because of her, this town was really proud, and they sought out education and knowledge and learning, so much so that they had the second biggest library in the entire world, over 200,000 books in their library that is actually uh, just a little bit north of her, of her temple. And so maybe it's Athena that you wanted to worship and, and, and steered you away from the one true God. But maybe it's not her. Maybe you want to worship somebody else. Maybe you want to go down towards the theater and go right here to this temple of Dionysus. The, if you were here for a good time and not a long time, if you wanted to be on the party scene, like this is where you would find yourself. Because Dionysus was the god of wine, the god of theater, the god of arts. And part of worshiping him was just a lot of things, a lot of partying that did not honor God. I'll spare you the details uh, but a lot of things that clearly would not bring glory to him. And it was promoting the things of Satan. But maybe it's not Athena, maybe it's not Dionysus. Maybe what you needed was healing. Uh, maybe you needed the God of healing and the God of medicine. And he was known as Asclepius. And Asclepius, his uh, center actually wasn't on the hill, but it was actually on the plain, so a uh, thousand feet down low. But Asclepius... Uh, was, wasn't just a temple where you went to sacrifice to him. It was a healing center. It was the most comprehensive hospital in the entire country, in that area. And so it was like having the Cleveland Clinic in your backyard. People would come from all over to come to this. And a lot of us are probably more familiar with him than we realize, this God, because he was often represented by snakes. And his symbol was a rod with two snakes on it. And a lot of us have probably seen like the medical symbol that you know, still we, we use today for a lot of things, rod with snakes around it. And that stems, traces back to this Pergamum hospital. And it was very up to date with modern medicine and um, different techniques that they would use. But a lot of it, or sorry, all of it was accredited to this god, Asclepius. And one of the ways that they would heal people is they would have you come in and they would have you stay the night there. That they'd give you a sedative and say, hey, just sleep in the temple, sleep in the chamber right here, and, uh, and, and we'll talk to you in the morning. But all throughout that temple, 
And all throughout this chamber, it was covered, and I mean filled, with non-poisonous snakes. And they represented the god Asclepius. And the hope is that you would, while you're sleeping, one would slither over you or even touch you and get a little bit of his power and you'd be healed. Anybody want to go to this hospital? <laughs> no. I may have lost a hand, but I'm like, no, it's not worth it. Like, <laughs> I'm good. Uh, and it's this type of stuff they would have to do. And imagine yourself as a believer, as a Christian. You want healing for yourself, for your kid, but to do that, you have to give your allegiance to this God. It's a tough place to be in. But maybe it's not Athena, Dionysus, Asclepius. Maybe you want to go to the man in charge, right? The God of gods, the king of kings, and you want to sacrifice to the altar of Zeus, right? He's really the one, if you want something done, you know, go to him. And uh, we have this rendering of the city. You may wonder, like, okay, how much does it actually look like this? Because it was kind of built in this horseshoe manner. You know, it almost even looks like a seat or like a throne. Uh, here's a picture of what you find today of what this altar of Zeus looked like. And I'll wipe this real quick. We have uh, somebody in the early 1900s went to Pergamum, unearthed you know, a lot of this stuff, and they moved the entire altar, or at least the main front portion of it, to Berlin, Germany. And so if you can go to the Pergamum Museum in Berlin and walk the steps and see the altar of Zeus, and you can see the architecture of it, it is just impressive. Even the, the parts around it depicts the, the gods versus the titans, showing that Zeus is the god of gods, the lord of lords. No one has more authority than him. And obviously Jesus would have something to say about that, right? But maybe it's not Zeus. Because as, as important as he was, what was even more common was emperor worship. And we have another photo, just a drawing of what it could have looked like with people in it, what the scene could have been. You have Dionysus over here, and uh, over here is the temple to Athena. But maybe emperor worship was what you were participating in. And this, this temple right here, the highest part of the city. And this really unified Rome because everybody did it. Zach even talked about this last week in Smyrna of how common it was. But emperor worship began in Pergamum. So it was a huge deal for them. And you would have to sacrifice to them. And it is just a dangerous place to be if you said, no, I'm not going to do that. But you have all these fake gods tempting you with something that is against your beliefs and promoting sinful, just dishonoring things that, that don't bring glory to God, whatever desire you had in this city, it could be fulfilled. Like you name it, they got it. And this is the context of the Pergamum church. That they are in a place that Jesus is acknowledging, hey, you guys have it tough. Like Satan dwells here, this is his throne. It is not easy. That Satan has real influence and real power in this world, but this city seems to be the center of it. And it's powerful. And they are in enemy territory, and it is a tough place to be a Christian as everything is against God. Yet, Jesus tells them, you are holding on to my name. You are holding on to my truth, and they are loyal to Jesus. They're not afraid 
you know, they're not shaken, they're not afraid to, to take their stand for the one true God. They're, uh, they did not deny their faith, and they're dedicated. And their kind of zeal for Jesus is uh, personified by a guy named Antipas, who was mentioned in verse 13. Antipas only has one reference in the entire Bible, and it's right here. So we don't have a lot of details on him. He could have been their pastor at one point. He could have been a leader or maybe just someone who was really faithful and, and gave them uh, a model. But Antipas, he lost his life because he was committed to Jesus. And history tells us that he was killed as he was placed inside of a brass bull used for offering, and he was roasted to death inside that bull. They put a fire underneath it, heated him up, and he basically slowly baked to death. And it's this type of just event, and it was public. It wasn't like a, a hidden thing. This type of thing was happening that the church had to deal with. And the church saw Antipas be killed for his faith, and it didn't ruin them. It didn't frighten them to the point of not wanting to continue to follow Jesus. If anything, it motivated them. It strengthened them. And this is what they did well. They were dedicated. And this is what God wants from his people. And the church exceeded or excelled in this. And although that's true, Jesus says, hey, here's what you're doing. Uh, here's how you're thriving. But he goes on and has more to say. Verse 14 and 15. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there, so not the whole church. In fact, probably the majority of the church is doing great. But you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so he's saying, hey, you're doing great, but... Not everyone is on the same page, that some are holding on to false teaching, which impact the way they live. And we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, uh, but it mentions, too, teaching of Balaam and teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, they basically believe that, okay, you have a, you have a, a faith in Jesus, you've been forgiven, you are saved, you're going to heaven, like you got your your get out of jail free card, you can live how you want. Like, you're good. Don't worry about it. And that's obviously not what Jesus is telling us to do. And it also lined up with the teaching of Balaam. And Balaam was, is somebody that we read about in the Old Testament. As Israel left Egypt, God freed them from slavery, and they are on their way to the promised land. It takes about 40 years. But as they're wandering in the desert, Balaam is, and I'll use this word lightly, was a prophet for God that he spoke on behalf of him. And uh, one of the common enemies of Israel was the Moabites. The king of Moab, was na his name was Balak, or Balak, and he had heard about God, he'd heard about Israel, and their God split an entire sea, they're taking over cities, I don't want to be next. And so... I got to figure out something to do. He hires Balaam, the prophet, 
to curse Israel so that they would be cursed by God and lose their power. And so he reaches out to Balaam, and Balaam's like, yeah, sure, why not? He goes and uh, says he's overlooking kind of the camp of Israel, and he begins to speak uh, curses against them. That was his intention anyway. But the Bible says every time he talked, God didn't allow that to happen. In fact, God made blessings come out of his mouth. And it just didn't work. And he's telling, God, he's telling Balak, he's like, look, I don't know. I can't do anything. I can't curse what God has blessed. And so Balaam, who couldn't you know, bring that promise to Balak, he says, look, I, I know that didn't work, but I have another idea. Why don't you corrupt them from the inside out? Make them look just like you. Take your pagan Moabite women, send them to the Israelite camp, have them tempt the men. They'll begin um, sleeping with them, uh, being in a relationship with them. Then they'll be more open to their religion and their fake gods, and they'll eat food, sacrifice to idols, and then they'll lose their power as they're not following and obeying God. And that's what happened. And the plan worked. That says that was until God intervened and 24,000 Israelites died as God says, hey, enough is enough. That because they were participating in these things, God made sure that the internal corruption stopped so that they could get back on track. And that's the delightful story of Balaam. Now, just like the Israelites were tempted uh, and lured away by Balaam's false teaching, the Pergamum church, they were tempted to do the same thing, to mix their faith in God with the ways of the world. That instead of being distinct, they were married to their culture. And they believed that you could be a Christian, but your life didn't necessarily have to reflect it. That you could be a Christian and you could do whatever you wanted with your life. That you could go to pagan festivals, you can sleep with whoever you want to, your life can look any sort of way and still follow Jesus. And he's writing this church going, that's not how this works. That's not how I designed my church to be. We are to live faithful to Jesus only. And this church is passionate, they're committed, but they lacked a depth in God's word that allowed them to be just kind of torn away from the real truth by these false teaching. And they claimed a belief that was different from the world, but their lives looked very similar to the world. So Jesus gives them the only solution. Verse 16. So in light of that, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus does not take this lightly, and he says, you need to repent. And repent means to change your mind, leading to a change in action. Acknowledging that, okay, this does not honor God, I'm going to turn from it and turn towards and follow him. And this matter is so serious that he says, I will come fight against them. And it's because God hates when this becomes true of his people. That he wants to protect the purity of his church. And so he will, if need be, cut out the toxicity 
so that the church as a whole can remain on mission. Because we, as believers, we have the privilege of showcasing God to the world. And the problem with Pergamum is instead of influencing others, being a light, they themselves were influenced. And we can repeat the same mistake today, that we too live in a place that is difficult to follow Jesus. Now, I don't think America is Satan's throne. I'm not saying that. But there's no doubt that all of us will leave this room here this morning and we will go into workplaces, we will go to families, we will uh, be encountering with friends and in a relationship, some of us that make it difficult to follow and honor God. And because that's true, what often happens is we feel the temptation to not make waves, to not stand out, and just do what everyone else is doing. And so instead of following our convictions, we conform. And Jesus is reminding Pergamum, this church, that they are not meant to live like the world. We are different. That the gospel message, the fact that all of us fall short, we have no hope in ourselves, eternal life and forgiveness and salvation is only found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That message is unique. It should be desirable by other people because it's different than what other people have. But often, I, I, I think most of us have a desire to honor God, have a desire for others to know him and to reach others and to, and to help share the truth and um, have them come to know God. But I think a lot of us do it in a way that we try to be like the world and kind of fit in a little bit. Oh, maybe that way they'll hear what I have to say or that way, you know, um, I'm not being too crazy with it. But why would they want my hope if I look just like them? If my life doesn't showcase anything different? Jesus is telling us that his ways are not like the world. And if we start living by the ways of the world, we will start looking like the world. And if we are not different than the world, then we have nothing to offer the world. That anything that is found in our culture, in society, it's counterfeit. It leads to death. It offers nothing. Our message is different through the gospel of Jesus and only the gospel is found true joy, contentment, and hope, and purpose. And we need to show that it's different by the way that we live. And this church, they tried, but they realized that they can't have it both ways. If you notice in the, in the text, it said that they held on to Jesus' name, but they also held on to false teaching, which impacted the way they live. And so they're stuck kind of playing tug of war, trying to balance both worlds. And I think we do the same thing. That we claim Jesus, but we watch the same movies as the world. As long as it's funny, you know, I know it's not, it's, it's not clean, but it's funny. It's, it's no big deal. We uh, talk like the world. We use our words to tear people down, or we talk negative. We make the same jokes and laugh at the same things as, as, as the world does. We have the same goals as the world. That it's not about God's glory, but it's about my comfort and my future. That we have the same relationships as the world. That we run our marriage and our household 
with unforgiveness and bitterness just like the world does. That we grieve just like the world. That we are, I mean, as if we have no hope or as if there's no eternal life. We drink just like the world, that we run to it to kind of numb us out any chance that we get. We spend our finances just like the world. That it's not about, man, uh, this is God's money. I want to use it wise, steward it well for his glory. No, I'm going to use it just how I want to and spend it. We do all these things like the world, but don't worry, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And Jesus is reminding us we shouldn't operate that way. That it's easy to do. We talked about this. It's easy to follow the current of culture. But if you don't make an effort, or if we don't make an effort, we will look just like everybody else. And this is where I don't know what all of our lives look like, but if you would just take a little bit of self-inventory and ask yourself, like, does my life look any different? Could somebody tell that I'm a believer just by maybe watching my life for a few days or for a week? And if we find ourselves very similar to those around us and there's really no distinction, that's cause for concern. Listen to how John, in another letter, uh, writes about the same topic. First John 2, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. We're reminded that we need to let go fully of the world and hold on to Jesus and be faithful to him. That we may be in the world, but we don't want to be like it. And Jesus, as he's telling this church, hey, this is where you need to um, realize that, that you're not doing things right. He gives a promise to the faithful believers in this church. Verse 17. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Basically, he's saying, hey, if you're reading this, pay attention. Listen up. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So he's saying to the one who conquers, and the person who conquers is not just someone who does a bunch of great stuff for Jesus. John actually tells us what a conqueror is in 1 John chapter 5. He says, who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So have you placed your faith that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is Savior and God and died for our sins? Okay, you are a conqueror. That is you. You are a believer, a Christian. And this is kind of war language. And Jesus says, hey, you are not a conqueror because of how great you are or what you've done. You already come from a place of victory because I've done it all for you. I've paid the price. I've saved you. I am where your hope is found. And he says, to those believers, to those faithful Christians, I will give you, first thing he says is hidden manna. And uh, manna if, if we're familiar with that time, again, around Balaam, that while the Israelites were wandering, God fed them. He provided bread from heaven that they would gather most days of the week, 
and they were fed for years upon years. And uh, Jesus comes around in the New Testament and says, God provided your ancestors, and that was great. Like, he sustained them. But I am the bread of life. I fulfill, I provide, I sustain in a way that is greater and more fulfilling than anything else will. So when Jesus is telling us, I will give you the hidden manna, we get Jesus, the bread of life, that we will be satisfied for eternity. And not only that, but it says that we get a white stone with a new name. And uh, there's a lot of views on what this could be, but it's probably uh, following kind of the Roman tradition of after an athletic competition or contest, they would award the victor a white stone, and they would inscribe their name on it. And it wasn't necessarily like a trophy to, you know, just put above their fireplace. It was like, a, like an entrance ticket. Like that white stone with your name on it, you would present it once you go to the after party or the kind of the post-race celebration, if you will, and say, hey, let me in. I have access. And that's the idea here. Idea here. And uh, same kind of concept at our Fremont campus. We have these white, like, fob systems that let us in the building. And each one is associated to our name. So it's like, okay, nine, you know, Michael checked in. 901, Zach checked in, AJ checked in. And so it has our names associated to this, and it gives us access into the building. Uh, after the first service, our tech guy, Nick, reminded me, thanks for letting everyone know how to rob the Fremont campus. We appreciate it. Um, so don't grab that. Uh, but Jesus is using this illustration to say, hey, just as if you would get access into to one of those feasts, he's saying something so much greater that he promises access to eternal victory in heaven. And that stone not only has your name on it, but it, it, you are given a new name. So I don't know whether you like your name now or you don't like it. <laughs> You're getting a new one in eternity. And it showcases God's special care and adoption for you as his son or daughter. And as a Christian people in Pergamum, they may have missed out on a lot of parties, a lot of feasts, a lot of celebrations because of their faith, but Jesus assures them they will have access to the best celebration as we celebrate Jesus for millions and millions and millions of years to come, that that's what we'll be able to have because he has accepted us. And so he's telling these people Hey, we are not meant to live a life where we conform, but realize that you are meant to conquer because Jesus has done this in your life. And God is telling Pergamum, we are meant to live a life that is different and set apart. And so ask yourself this morning, like, what areas in your life do you conform to the world? What areas do you maybe not showcase the hope and greatness of God in your life? Don't know what that is, but maybe you do. And this isn't easy. Like, this is very difficult. And maybe you're sitting here going, like, okay, that's easy for you to say, Pastor Michael. Like, you go to church. All your coworkers are saved. <laughs> I get that. And, and maybe you're sitting here going, like, I'm the only Christian in, at my job. I'm the only Christian in my family. I'm the only Christian in my marriage. 
It's exhausting. I get made fun of. I get pushed back all the time. Jesus made it clear in verse 13. He says, hey, I know where you're at. Like, I see you. I care. And, and I'm aware of your situation. I know how difficult it is. And he's saying that if you, were, if you would just hold on to my name and my word, that you would be able to stand firm no matter how difficult it is. And I think, as Jesus tells us, that he comes with the sword, um, the double-edged sword. That I think that's the main way that we fight conformity. That we set ourselves distinct from culture is that we simply follow God's word. We know what it says and we know how Satan works in the lives of, of people in, in scripture and the stories from there. But we just follow his word. And what if... We commit to following God's word at all costs. Understanding that yes, it will be tough. Yes, when we do that, we'll be misunderstood. And yes, we'll have to do it through a lot of prayer and gentleness and love and joy with other people. But what if you, being in that family, in that workplace, in that apartment complex, what if you being there meant that you can make an eternal difference when you hold on to the name of Jesus and live out your faith. Because the best way to reach the world around us and those around us is to show them how much greater Jesus actually is. And we display that by the way that we live our lives. And that happens when we place our faith in Jesus, when we fall in love with him and his word, and when we make it a priority to obey his word at all costs. Let me uh, pray for us that, that God would allow us to do that in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving your word for 2,000 years. And, and God, the message to Pergamum this morning, we need it. I need it. We need to realize that we are not meant to blend in and be like everybody else. God, we are meant to showcase the hope of the world. That we are meant to be salt and light in this life and to show others what they're missing and what they can have access to. And I pray that you would um, allow us to have greater faith and strength to obey you, but prioritize your word above all else. That you're telling us that your word is the standard for our life. And I pray that we would follow that to the best we can using your strength and the fruit of the spirit that we get from you. And, um, and God, just help us to be used in Tiffin, in the, in the, wherever we're from, in our workplaces, in our jobs, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our homes. God, help us to show others your goodness and the grace that's offered to them through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.